This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Leonard Haas, Board Chair of the Winkelt Foundation, a Philadelphia institution supporting efforts to strengthen and enrich culture, community, and the natural environment. He serves on the board with his three brothers, who are also directors of the foundation. The brothers live locally, with the exception of Duncan, who resides in Seattle and works from the satellite office, Wincote Foundation Northwest. They carry on the legacy started by their father, John C. Haas. The Wincote Foundation was founded in December of 2009 to make grants in a broad range of areas, arts and culture, education, the environment, health and human services, preservation, and public media and journalism. In June of 2014, the Wincote Foundation and its board of directors received the Philadelphia Orchestra Award for engagement with patrons in making possible the dramatic transformation of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Their contributions reflect unparalleled leadership in Philadelphia's philanthropic community and make a bold statement about the organization's value to the entire region. Leonard has also been instrumental in several other philanthropic activities benefiting Philadelphia, which we'll discuss later on in our interview. Leonard, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Oh, thank you, Robert. Nice to be here. Yeah. Well, the Haas name is tied to a legacy that dates back to post-World War II, starting with the founding of the William Penn Foundation by your grandfather Otto and grandmother Phoebe. Can you lay out for us the timeline of your family's involvement in charitable giving? Well, you're right. It did, it did start back there with my grandparents, and... It's evolved over the years. It's gone through many changes of, of name, and I think it was originally first named after my grandmother, Phoebe. Um, and the first grants given out were probably huge for that time, but not sm- very small by today's standards, maybe a $50,000 grant or you know $100,000 as a budget. I don't have the exact numbers, but... Uh, so they started that as a two-fold measure of being able to um, company stock in one pot with a charitable um, benefit and also to um, obviously increase and improve the value of life in the Delaware Valley. And my father and my uncle, F. Otto Haas, were very, very busy with the family company, Roman Haas, in, in the early days and didn't really have much time uh, for the philanthropy side of things, and things really changed in 1960 when my grandfather passed away. Um, he was pretty strong, work ethic-minded uh, German from Stuttgart, you know, and um, appreciated the philanthropy side, but really wanted my father and uncle to focus a lot on the company. Um, but my father's heart and my uncle's heart, heart too, really uh, was they were yearning to do more of this philanthropic work that they really felt they could do with this, with the William Penn Foundation, and so they became very involved then, and and really took on many social issues. and And my father was uh, into Boys and Girls Club, and um, my uncle Otto was into the the arts and Walnut Street Theater and helping them. And so they passed that on down to us. I mean, I remember as young children, we would come in to the William Penn Foundation and and have little updates about 
projects and things that they've done around the city, and we were always really impressed about how it seemed they were really trying to make life better for so many people in in the uh, in the area. And, and of course, as we got a little older, and me personally, just getting involved with family, and I had two children, and I got very involved in that, and was not so involved, but have swung around again, and have been. Uh, much more involved, especially with Wincote Foundation and, and more and more now with the William Penn Foundation. Um, it really was something that my parents, my father specifically, really wonderfully just gave us an opportunity to explore. Never forced it on us. It was always there if we were interested. And how did the sale of Roman Haas in 2009 open up the doors for further philanthropy in behalf of the Haas name? Well, first of all, it was it was... It was devastating. It was really a hard, a hard time. My father's getting older, and here was the company his father had started, um, and we were approaching the hundred-year anniversary. And uh, Dow came in with this offer that the board couldn't refuse, and it was, um, it was unfortunate for the you know the romantic side for the fact that it was a family-run. Company or a family company, but, but obviously you know public company. But and for so many years, and for so many years, and it was started by my grandfather, my father's father, and uh, so there was a, and the the, the uh, atmosphere there was always one of uh, the company treated employees right. They really took care of people. They really tried their best to be a very you know thoughtful company. And um, Which people selfish, surely not to be taken for granted. Yeah, and you're talking about like a chemical company, and a big international chemical company could be uh, is usually not the case, perhaps. But um, you know, we as children and growing up, we were constantly meeting employees who had worked. Oh, I've worked for a company twenty years, thirty years, forty years, and oh, your grandfather was. And the way they would talk about the morale of the place and the people was just, it was no escaping the fact that everyone really cared deeply about it. So that was hugely unfortunate. However, the flip side, of course, was that uh, the foundation and Winco Foundation uh, reaped substantial benefits because of the, the sale of the stock that then we could invest and earn even more income. So basically, bottom line, that the, the charities and the, and the region have really benefited greatly from it. Yeah. Despite the, uh, the personal reactions yeah. of the family business, so yeah. many people have benefited from it. Do you specifically remember your grandfather? Now, he passed away when I was a year and a half, oh. so I don't remember him. My sister has, she's uh, she five or six years older than me. She, she has some foggy memories of him. Um, he, legend has it, he really didn't really care for children. He didn't want them around too much. Um, so if we ever showed up, or not me, because I was only a year and a half, uh, he usually would disappear, and, you know, so no one really has, none of, none of us have memories. My, some of my cousins who are a little older, they have some memories of him, and uh, we were just talking to a long-time employee who worked for my parents and helped us in, you know, with cooking and cleaning in the house growing up. She remembers him being, she knew him when she was very young. He was a very stern man, but very... Uh, had a very playful, jokey sort of side, but he would always deliver it very straight and very, you know, because he didn't, she said, I don't remember him smiling at all ever. And, and my father used to tell stories of him playing little practical jokes and stuff, but being also very 
very driven, very, um, just not a, a soft, warm, fuzzy, you know. He, he had a pretty rough time growing up. He had to go to work when he was 14 or something because his father passed away in Germany and he just was thrown into the workforce. That was so. a common scenario, though. Oh, sure, yeah, it really was. And what about your father, John? What do you remember about him? Mm. Well, he was he was a sweetheart. He was someone who, um, again, I, it, he kept his work and his family stuff very separate. Um, uh, he, he never, we never got a sense of, for many years, we didn't know exactly what he did. We knew he worked for some company, and then it was a family company. This is when we were younger, of course. Um, he kept a lot of that stuff pretty pretty private and uh, would just really devote his time to being with the family and and everything was very regular we knew weekends he was always around every day he would come home from to he'd always take take the train to work from Villanova into Center City and back and 622 he'd walk in the door wash his hands and by 630 we're sitting down having dinner you know it was like clockwork every every day and there's a sort of a, a comfort to that I think as, as a as a kid um and he would read us bedtime stories, and you know, so he uh, and he liked to play tennis and liked to go hiking, which we would all often do as as a family. So we had a lot of and travel. We did traveling to Germany and, and Austria um, when we were in our teen years, and those were really memorable, wonderful trips, and really got to bond with with him and my mother. Were there key life lessons that he taught you specifically? I would say, first of all, it was, again, the money was a, a responsibility. It was, it was something to, to really be careful about and not, there's no entitlement. Just because you have some money, that doesn't mean you're entitled. And if anything, it's like you're really expected to to do something about it and with it and not just he just really he didn't like um, frivolous spending and and, and uh, he really believed in putting back into the community what he he got and especially you know if he, he earned so many benefits from he worked very hard obviously in the company but because you know he had uh, his father started the company he had a, a certain amount of wealth that he made it very clear was not something to take lightly or for granted and to really um, don't show it off don't you know make sure you do something good with it and that was a big big thing and no no um, no bragging think about you know your fellow human being I think we've all really grown up with that that ethic of taking care of someone or being sensitive to others around you um with, and what you with humility too, I would assume. With humility, it was all all humility and and incredible. Um, I mean, the stories people would tell him about at work, or you know, people, you know, executives would pull in with their their fancy cars and and stuff, and he he liked to drive his little uh, 1962 VW Beetle, you know, he liked his his parking space, and people just thought that was you know hysterical, and he loved to eat in the the lunchroom with everybody else and I uh, was very very in touch with with people and not not this sort of someone up above in the office he really uh, yeah it sounds like he set the stage for your for your philanthropic love 
Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when when we saw what he did and how people were affected by it and what they said about him, that just made us really feel very proud, very, you know, proud to be his son, very proud to have the opportunity to try to, you know, to carry carry on with that. Um, and he was really in the trenches back in the time when Philly was, it was a dangerous place in the 60s and 70s. It was, you know, but he's, he's in the black neighborhoods trying to really, you know, see what can be done to have everybody get along better. Uh, he was friends with Reverend Leon Sullivan and all these people who are real wonderful activists for, for the cause. Did you have a sense of your family's philanthropic background when you were growing up? Like, when did it finally hit you that you're part of this legacy of philanthropy and making a true difference in not only the city, obviously, but the region and well, beyond? Well, that, that, yeah, we, we, like I said, he kept things pretty, pretty separate. Well, being that even as we were teenagers and going to high school and wasn't really until after college, and I came back and and started, you know, living quote unquote on the adult life, and um, that I uh, started to grasp the scope of it. I had always been aware of it, of course, because, like I said, we it was around Christmas time usually. But as a family, we would come visit the William Penn Foundation office, and um, they would have a little lunch there for us, and they would sort of say, okay, this is what the foundation has done this year, a couple of projects, and then we would, sometimes when we were old enough, we would go in a, a van to the, the senior center or whatever it was that they had just rehabbed, and we would take a tour of the place that William Penn helped, uh, you know, rehab or refurbish. And so it was always there. We knew about it, but never really understood the, the scope of it and and the the just the the reach of really what it what it had my older brother david was really he was a little older he got married a little later than me and i i when i got married and had my kids 27 years ago I, that's that was my world and i really said i'm going to take a break from from anything like the foundation and um but then since then i've come back around to it but yeah i, I guess it was after college it really became very clear, like what a big opportunity it really is. Was there a signal event that happened at the time, or was this a gradual process of your realization of what it meant to be a Haas? I think it was a gradual realization. Um, I think it also, as as my father got older, and he he also very respectfully respectfully started stepping down and and not being. He didn't want to be. The old patriarch guy who started the thing was gonna finish it out, but you know until he until he keels over and dies, and and y'all better stick around with me and do what I say. You know, he was so cognizant of being a mentor, but making it clear that you know you guys are rising up. You you need to think of the future and what you want to do with it. I'm I'm stepping back and out. It's your turn. And again, it was always if you won, if if the interest is there, it wasn't. A, it, there was no you better or you have to. It was a real sense of him having the sense to, and not just step away and disappear. He was always involved, but he made it clear that you know, he made it really obvious that you know it was our turn to 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 figure out what we want to do and have happen. So it was nice to have him as a mentor, 
sounding board. He was always there. He would come to meetings and still take the train when he's 85 or 86 or whatever, you know, to, <laughs> to hear and, and have meetings and, and stuff like that. Um, so, Were there things that you pursued before you became actively involved in the Wincote Foundation? Oh, well, yeah, theater was my was my passion. I, I think I started being interested in that. Well, I started, we started very young in the family. Just We grew up in a, in a house in a neighborhood where we weren't really, we felt a little isolated. It was a, there weren't neighbors really close by, so we, we didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, we would go to friends' houses to play. But for the most part, my brothers and sister and I, we, there's five of us all together, and we pretty much just, came up with stuff to do on our own and one of the a lot of those things tended to be we did puppet shows we would make recordings of of just making silly stuff up or we would make movies take the home movies everything was seemed very artistic like performance <laughs> i don't know why uh sort of oriented and i just uh got really got into that and then when i got into grade school and seventh eighth grade started acting in plays and and then I was just I was bit by this bug and I went through did every play I could in high school went to Ithaca College for theater and then went to New York City to try to and came back here to Philly to pursue that and then that really took off in uh, like I said the late 80s 1990 with People's Light out of Malvern so I mean that was my that's always been my main major drive and passion for us um but I would say in the past 10 years, things have shifted to, and again, because you know my father was getting older and we we're getting older too, <laughs> um, the focus started shift, shifting a lot more towards this Winco. What about Wincoat Foundation? What about um, you know this life here in Philadelphia? And so as, as you can probably guess, my main focus of course, passion is, is enriching this cultural life here sure. in Philadelphia. Um, that's not the only thing on my on my uh, uh, pie chart, but it's um, it certainly is the, probably the biggest um, focus, mainly because that's my my passion. We and brothers, we all have different passions. Um, uh, I have a younger younger brother, Duncan, and uh, he is he lives in Seattle. Um, I think he, but he is—he's officially a, a Wincoat oh. director, um, but uh, he doesn't—he—he he mainly his his focusing his focus on on uh, funding is all out in, in Seattle. Just thought I'd mention that. Is that equally active in Seattle as as the Wincoat is here in Philadelphia? Well, he, he you know his portion of it is you know, that's what you know his allotment he gets to you know his his share if you will is uh, is pretty much all every once in a while. He'll say, "Hey, I hear the barns or the the Rodin Museum is doing something. What if we all chipped in and bought a room or put a plaque up for mom and dad or something like that?" So he'll do some Philly things, but for the most part, he's he's focused out there. Um, he set up a, I think it's a, I forget what he calls it, the Northwest Wincoat Foundation, or something. I forget what it's called, but. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. 
from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Leonard Haas, Board Chair of the Wincoat Foundation. Well, in addition to the, uh, the Wincoat Foundation, you also sit on the board of the William Penn Foundation. Right. How do these two organizations' um, missions differ? Well, in a way, they're, the similarities basically are improving the life of this Delaware Valley. It, it is the cultural life or the life uh, in general? Life in general. There's, there's environment, there's watershed protection, protect, protection. there's um, you know, children, youth, and families kind of uh, categories of education and cultural arts. Um, and that's the William Penn Foundation is, of course, they have a, a full board, they've got staff, they've got, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's what I always refer to, that's the big operation. Over here are things with Wincoat are a little smaller. Um, we don't have there's a staff staff of three perhaps you know who you know managing director Kristen Ross and her uh, two assistants um, and then there are us brothers on the uh, as directors and then, so it's pretty much turns into what were our personal sort of passions are uh, the, the media multimedia stuff my old brother David and Fred is interested in some arts as well as as me and. So it, it it's a little more driven by in the individual over here at Wincoat as opposed to William Penn as, as much more of a mission, a corporation and you know, a full a full board and staff and the whole process for for that. And um, so I, I I love being able to be involved with William Penn, of course, because um, that's a huge <laughs> that that has you know, we have tremendous impact that we can make. Over here at Wincoat, it feels uh, a little more individual, a little more like specifically something that I can do. And I think you know what I've done over the years is, of course, focused on these on the theater and the cultural scene, and more family oriented too, mm-hmm. which harks back to what yeah. you talked about with your father and your mother. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Instead of uh, instead of you know, yeah, when you have a when you have a, f- a, a full board and staff and mission and you know corporation. Like William Penn, then then things that's I can always make my sort of voice heard or whatever, but I can't just me alone personally drive something as much as I can perhaps with with Wincoat. And what aspects of Philadelphia's culture do you find the most potential for growth? Well, you know, it. I always tell the story of like when I was here in the late seventies and doing, uh, trying to get little jobs in, in the city before I went off to college, you know, trying to maybe work at a theater to help build sets or whatever. There were uh, very, very few theaters to choose from. Uh, Walnut Street, of course, was here, but they were mostly a tryout town for other theaters, I mean, other plays that were on their way to New York. It was like the sort of the final 
testing out place before it got to New York. Um, which is itself an historic theater, small which but historic. Is very historic. Yes. Um, and there were a handful of others. You know, the Philadelphia Theater Company, which was really the Philadelphia company at first, I think. And, uh, they were small but around in 1974, and there was the Drama Guild. There was like just a handful of, of these theaters. So when I went away in the 70s and went to college and then spent four or five years in New York, and when I came back in 86 or so, it had just dra- dramatically changed. And in terms of just sheer number, the Arden and the Wilma had grown, and, and uh, all these other theater companies were sprouting up. And, and I was finding myself, wow, I've got, I'm involved with Wincoat and I can, I can help make an impact here. And, uh, so it feels like over the years, it's just the number of theaters have grown and we have to be careful too, because, you know, we've got to make sure we still have the audiences, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the past couple of years, you know, there's, there's definitely a challenge with number of people and coming to shows, but also how they're coming to shows you know, subscriptions. People don't do subscriptions anymore. Um, like we used to buy a five, six show subscription. Yeah. I mean, they do with the Walnut or certain theaters, but a lot of them, people tend to like choosing last minute. Uh, the, uh, it's really changed the whole landscape in terms of how theaters have to have to adapt. But in terms of vibrancy and and, and uh, v- a variety of there's there's classic theater, there's experimental theaters, dance, there's the devised work. You know, companies that get together and just create their own piece and they only do that kind of work and it's 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 always uh you never know what to expect you don't you know but it's 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 uh, very exciting so that that to me has been you know a huge a huge change and sometimes it just means for three years of a company is starting out or something giving them a, a sort of a a nice foothold of like okay here's some operating support for three years you know to, to really get yourself grounded work towards, you know, diversifying and, and, and growing so that you can, you know, make a difference and stay alive. Uh, so. And you mentioned the Wilma Theater, and in March 2014, you spearheaded a large donation to the Wilma Theater. So how did that donation impact not only the Wilma Theater, but the theater culture in Philadelphia in general? Yeah, I think you're, ta- you're talking about Wintix, right? Yes. Is the name of it. Sure they, they came up, I thought that was, that was sort of clever. Yes. For years... I was trying to figure out, kept kicking around in my head, how do you, how do you make theater more affordable to the, to a lot of these people who? But well, it really came from my friends who I, you know, as an actor, I'm working, and I, a lot of my friends wanted to go see shows that their friends are in. We all wanted to go see shows that our friends are in, and I could always get a ticket, but a lot of my friends couldn't get a ticket because some of the theaters, a lot of the theaters were kind of strict about you know it's either full price or maybe a little off, you know, and then a lot of my friends couldn't afford it and it really bothered me that as an actor you wouldn't be able to go see what your other actors are doing in town it just seemed like how can how can we make that affordable and then it got complicated thinking about how would you actually organize that, like if an artist how do you prove he's an artist and who, how much do you, how do you how do you make it work? And so I never quite figured out how to do it. And then last year, Blanca and, and Jamie from Wilma started bringing this topic up again. I said, oh, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And they, they, we figured out this sort of way to try it for three years. 
so that um, it they're subsidized for you know for three years and it, it, so that they can offer twenty five dollar tickets. So for the Wilma, you could that's a hundred dollars for four shows, which is kind of amazing. And then the student and artist rate is ten dollars. So it's uh, it was really well received. I was very excited to. You know, I th- I thought it was a pretty cool thing. I didn't. I wasn't quite sure how people would really react to it, but um, it seems like it's uh, every everyone seems very happy and excited about it. So it's 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 new. We haven't quite seen. I haven't uh, checked in with them in a, a month or so about so how's it, how has it been looking because it just started this this past season um, for this season. Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll track it and see, but. That was pretty exciting. And this could well be a model for other theaters, and not only theaters, but performing arts organizations. Right. One of the things I love about the Philadelphia Chamber Music Society is their top ticket price is 23 or $24. And as a result, they sell out 80% of their concerts. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they get all kinds of foundation support, and they're accessible, everybody loves them, and you get a really vibrant community of classical music, chamber music, all kinds of opera, and, and all kinds of things that they present. So. When you go to the Philadelphia Orchestra, by contrast, you get two tickets in the orchestra section, and then you have dinner in town, and all of a sudden it's four hundred dollars. So, you know, how do you how do you uh, respond to that kind of thing, and and what would you like to do to make it accessible to everybody? People talk about you know maybe theater is dying or classical music is dying, but that's not true. It's the accessibility that's making it so hard for these people to come to it. That's very true, and we we don't have. The subsidy from our government that these other countries that you see have, and although that's it's, slightly gradually changing, but mm, it certainly remains the case, right? Um, and that's that's always going to be uh, that uphill struggle. And when you also have local foundations or funding that either shifts their priorities or you know spends down or leaves, then it gets then it gets a little uh, it can get a little dire. And how how do you uh, that's just the constant question, but it's—it's. It's, I think it's something that we had just had to try with the Wilma first and see how how could we translate this into like the orchestra and because obviously the orchestra has a lot more overhead, right? So it's a little trickier. But yeah, they should. You know, I don't know how to make that more accessible, but that's that's the that's the challenge. When Simon Rattle was conducting Schoenberg's Fair Leader with the Philadelphia Orchestra, I think it was in the 90s, and it was at the Academy of Music, and they at the time offered $5 student tickets. And you had students lined up around the block, all around Locust Street, all around 15th Street, because they were so eager to get in. And this is a very difficult score. This is not a Tchaikovsky symphony. So, so the, the interest, again, was clearly there, and a lot of young people really wanted to go to see it. So... Based on, on facts like that, and based on the reception so far for the Wilma Theater, and based on the Philadelphia Chamber Music Society, where they get so much activity and so much attendance, um, wouldn't this seem to be a no-brainer for other cultural organizations to adopt, at least in, in some way? Yeah, well, you need... It, it's expensive. <laughs> you know, obviously, it's like, it's like how do you... Um, but foundations are so eager to support organizations mm-hmm. that can draw 80 to 90, 100% of their, their attendance. Mm-hmm. That shows community involvement. It shows interest. Yeah. So that would seem to lend support to that model, right? Right, 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 yeah. 
yeah, it's it's uh, no, that makes total sense. I uh, the only thing I can think of is just that with fewer foundations, uh, fewer, obviously the corporate giving has gone down. Where where is that money going to come from? Um, and that that's the big challenge. I don't know the answer to that. Well, perhaps um, we can do a follow-up at some point and uh, update our listeners on the progress of the Wilma Theater yeah, and good. how this is going, and that'd be great to be able to publicize that and its success so that other theater companies have a model right. from which to really grow and increase attendance, which is terrific. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Tell us more about the, um, the Wincote Foundation's support of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Well, you know, they obviously were uh, in a real tight spot there, and, and we... Um, got together and thought how can we without you know you're always careful that you don't want to you know obviously throw a lot of money into the old sinking ship thing so we had to be very careful in terms of you know making sure they had a real solid plan they had a really and which they really did in terms of how to, to sort of regroup and um, what what could it take for us to really help them get through this and you know we, they went back and forth a lot and they, they just what really impressed us the most was their leadership and their board and their their plans on on how to reconfigure and come out of this thing uh and this thing you mean bankruptcy yeah yes. which they did and they uh, i you know i'm not a real numbers person and allison volgamore is this wonderful dynamic you know member of the of the orchestra where she you know, she was giving us a, an update this a few months back before before the award and all but just in terms of them getting out of their hole and, and the the deficit and and it was just it was truly astounding again i wish i could give you the numbers but um, i'm not a real numbers person but it was it was impressive that they really are and were making these huge strides and just we just combined forces here at Winco. We just said, "Well, this is this is worth looking at and trying to figure out what, what what's the sweet spot for getting them over this hump." And and um, I think there was there was just enough there without going investing too much into it. You know, we tried to find the balance, and um, it seemed like that that did the the trick for now. And we'll see. This guy Yannick is amazing, and yes, yes. the energy and yes. and. The, He's trying to really do some different fun stuff. Very dynamic, engaging, yeah. engaging the community as well. Yeah, making the music relevant and exciting to young people, uh, just across the board in so yeah. many ways. It's yeah. great to see. And it's it, it felt you know they, when they said they wanted to do the award, the honor. Of course, you know our first. This is another thing we got from my my father was like, well that that you know that's not important. We don't we don't like to be in the spotlight so much it's it's nice to you know if you have to put a plaque or a little brick somewhere okay maybe do that but um the the feeling is that you know we we just want to do it so that this continues this institution continues and it's better it's like we don't want to get awards we don't need plaques and bowls and you know special things but um we thought for this it would be since it was not an individual thing, it was a group thing, it was a Winco Foundation thing, okay, we'll, we'll do a, a, a little different thing and just sort of make it a, in hopes again of, of creating more buzz and a little more fun and excitement and stuff. And um, So to, to get that award was 
was nice, but you know, again, it was you know that you talk about what did you get from your father. That's definitely one of them. Where there's always a little, and I'm almost caught between because uh, being a performer, I I tend to love the spotlight. So I get I I have a foot in, on both sides. There's a part of me that says, you know, I just do love the stage. <laughs> so, um, but I also you know can hear my father just saying, well, just you know, just do the work, you know. <laughs> Which means that his legacy continues at the Winco Foundation. Yeah, it does. And I mean, there are still there are still some grants that he, you know, directed in his will that are are still being paid out. And um, so, yeah, his his legacy is also you know still there in that respect. But it's also just the the mentality of it. Yeah. Tell us about the uh, foundation's support of the United Way of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, it was the largest uh, donation in the organization's history, from what right. I understand. And so beyond the sheer size of that award, that, uh, that grant, um, what did it mean, both to the Foundation and to United Way? Well, I think, yeah, now this, was, this is something that was really, the United Way has been, and has always been much, you know, it was a real pet project of my father, that the Boys and Girls Club of Philadelphia. Um, and and United Way and I know yeah he he really directed a very nice nice sizable sizable uh, donation to them I that kind of was before my time in, in my involvement here I mean we were aware of it and 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 I know that uh, that was pretty much his his sort of swan song thing that he wanted to do and and uh, I know it it. Im- you know, it's just a major, majorly wonderful impact for for United Way. I don't, uh, I don't really know much I can really offer to that because that was really his his project, um, and um, you know that that is something he wanted to make a, a nice big impact on that. So that, that was him. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to see the ongoing contribution that the Wincup Foundation is making. And for our listeners, uh, the best way to reach Leonard and to support the Wincote Foundation's work is through wincotefoundation.org. And uh, listeners can click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. And Leonard, terrific to have you with us today. Well, thank you very much, Robert. I really appreciate the, the, uh, the interview. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.